program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. My guest today, John Kaur and C.L. Mitchell, join me in continuing an overview of the Torah. During our last program, we completed a brief review of Exodus in that journey. In today's program, we continue by advancing through Leviticus and beyond. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Which of you gentlemen would like to give the listeners a, a brief review of Exodus just so that they have uh, some guideline into into moving forward here. I suppose I'll take on that brief task, David. Um, before we were dealing with the themes of the books of the Torah and we were dealing with it from a conservative evangelical bent as well as from a Judaic bent and we were arguing that from a Judaic bent, uh, when we look at the book of Genesis, uh, that's understood as the election of a nation. It's not only that record of prehistory, if you will, uh, but it also really concentrates or focuses on the election of the nation of Israel as God's preferred and chosen people. Uh, that he's going to establish the Abrahamic covenant with as well as bring the promised seed, uh, the Messiah, through. Uh, we were discussing the book of Exodus and therein we argued that it was the redemption of that nation. It is where God secures for himself that nation out of the land of Egypt and uh, makes the uh, Passover uh, a reality in their lives. And that blood covenant, if you will, would be a depiction of what is anticipated under the new covenant um, that is going to be established uh, by means of Messiah's blood. And from there, we are proceeding now to the book of Leviticus to discuss that from an evangelical standpoint as well as from a Judaic standpoint. Well, which of you gentlemen would like to continue with a brief introduction to Leviticus? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about Le Leviticus because... Um, I uh, <laughs> have experienced teaching the book and um, as to CL, but Leviticus, uh, the people of God have been rescued out of Egypt, and at the end of Exodus, he is now beginning to dwell with them in this tabernacle, which is a very profound thing because of the fact that it's the first time since Genesis 3 that God's very presence is actually dwelling with his people. But the question that comes in Leviticus, and the question that is that's approached is, one is, how do you approach this God? How do we then begin to live with this God in our midst? Um, that is one of the main questions. As a theme, Leviticus deals with the sanctification of the people, but also with the sacrifices that are necessary in order to approach this God and necessary to sort of maintain this fellowship and uh, relationship with the Lord God. So you have the first part of Leviticus dealing with the sacrifices, dealing with the various laws of mediation and separation, uh, laws of atonement, uh, laws given to the priest of how to approach. Because you just, you just didn't walk into the tent. It's very dangerous. Um, they are learning something about this God, that he's holy, he's very, very different than the gods of Egypt or the gods of the ancient Near Eastern world. But then having offered sacrifice, having the high priest doing this, then uh, Leviticus teaches things about sanctification, how they are to live differently from the other nations. Their marriages are to be different. Um, their, the way they worship is to be different. The way they, uh, they were to keep themselves 
pure, eat certain foods, um, celebrate certain feasts that celebrate the, the distinctness of them as a people of God. They are beginning to learn that not only are is Lord the Lord God different, but they themselves, as being His people, will have to live differently. Does that mean uh, an advancement in intellect, and uh, maybe that you could label that not only as a uh, religious um, way of life, but also by then, in some ways, politically would be you wouldn't even use that for those times. But you know, how 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 was it that that people were becoming so much more intelligent and 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 logical about it by this stage? What was achi- what was doing that for them? Well, I'm not sure if it's something as is along the lines of they're becoming more intelligent. They are, what's significant is that they are receiving laws from God. But does, but does that not in itself, God is making, yes. make, giving us wisdom, giving us intelligence. Right, and that's a good that's a good question, a good point because now they begin to they begin to follow these laws. Not really, I don't think they will understand or realize the significance. For example, of kosher laws. You know, um, of of various foods that are good to eat, not good to eat, that turn out to be well, you know, true by um, medically. You know, um, as far as like eating, you know, certain kinds of, of foods and whatnot, uh, or even the the washing of hands before meals, something we take for granted. I don't think they realize, you know, they're following God's law because they want to be faithful, but the laws themselves will indicate an advanced knowledge. Of, um, of of life in the world, um, so I don't know if they have realized or did realize at the at the time. Years later, when medicine, you know, when modern technology comes along, we find out, oh, these laws were, were well uh, uh, beyond their years, well uh, advanced. So, um, um, so I don't know if that really answers your question, but the point is is that they are they begin to follow these laws and. And to begin to become a distinct people, um, and um, God blesses them, and and um, you know, and He promises various blessings for 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 obeying Him and stuff. So, um, but in Leviticus, you 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 get a, a lot of also pictures of of what the Messiah will fulfill or ha- uh, has fulfilled. Jesus uh, in Leviticus, you have the very presence of God. In the scriptures and the gospels, it says that Jesus is, is has tabernacled himself among us. He has taken on flesh. In Leviticus, you have the high priest who offers a sacrifice. In the New Testament, Jesus is described as our high priest. In Leviticus, you actually have the sacrifices, which were animals, which were continually being offered, that allowed fellowship with God to be maintained. In the New Testament, Christ Himself is that sacrifice. You have a wonderful pictures that are uh, alluded to and pictured uh, of New Testament theology, um, all wrapped up in the great book of Leviticus, which <laughs> not, you've not, covered very well. Which not everybody <laughs> likes to read, but now having said that, we <laughs> and there's principles there too that that we can learn as Christians that uh, uh, of sanctification, of of being different from the world, and and that's a good thing. Uh, being uh, different for the sake of showing off the glory of God and the nature of God. I, I would I would probably just add to that last <clears throat> question concerning the intelligence of the people, and I'll make two references in order to address that issue. The first is within the framework of the Book of Deuteronomy, as Moses is recounting. Um, Israel's history with this new generation who's going to enter into the promised land. Um, uh, He actually states to them uh, one of the aspects of uh, the importance of keeping the Torah. And he suggests because uh, all of the nations will see what a blessed people they are and what a wise God that they have uh, so that they will see that Yahweh is superior to all other gods um, so that he is incomparable being the almighty God, the transcendent God, not formed or fashioned with hands, but being God the creator. Moreover, the Psalter writes in Psalm 19 verse number 7, 
the Torah of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, when we talk about wisdom from a Hebraic standpoint, what we're looking at is knowledge of God's word and knowledge of God's world and the skillful ability to apply God's word in God's world at the appropriate time, bringing him glory. When we speak of this, certainly, if anyone comes into contact or into connection with the truths from an omniscient God, they are made far more intelligent for it. So is there an increase in their intelligence? Absolutely, there is an awareness on a spiritual level that they had not known before. Uh, As John so accurately stated, um, although you had the Code of Hammurabi and other law stipulations that were enacted at this time, we know that this particular nation living in the wilderness at this time uh, were one of the nations who did not become riddled with disease as a result of the laws even to bury their dong and to go and have a bowel movement out side of the camp and bury it. Uh, we know that they had safety uh, on, on a medical level um, as a result of their early ability to take individuals who were leprous and move them outside of the camp. Uh, we know that they were healthier than many other nations as a result of their uh, kosher laws as it pertained to food or dietary laws established very early. So did it make them intelligent? Yes, but it's not just during this particular time period. Even in Genesis, what we've discovered is God telling Abraham uh, to sacrifice, not to sacrifice, forgive me, but to circumcise rather, uh, um, Itzhak on um, and also um, uh, Ishmael, but Itzhak particularly on the eighth day, we know that there is um, uh, a, a, a realistic benefit to that on a medicinal level so that uh, their ability, the blood's ability to coagulate at that particular time so that they do not bleed to death is far better <coughs> at that particular point and higher at that point than at any other time. Uh, in addition to this, we also know that for cleanliness purposes, it becomes far more beneficial to the male, particularly in this dusty climate if in fact they are circumcised. So were they made more intelligent for their interaction with God? Absolutely, because we have to remember when we're dealing with the intelligence of God, we're not dealing with something that is so categorically different that we cannot identify, but we are dealing with something that is so immeasurably august that uh, we cannot begin to assume or presume that our ascentia, our mental ascentia, is of such that it is not benefited nor uh, when we have an encounter with God. We are always made far better, either morally, um, physically, or even intellectually, when we encounter uh, the divine. Does that wisdom <clears throat> in itself assert that we have to have more forgiveness in our hearts and, well, and therefore become at times weaker because of that moral position in the wake of our enemies? I'm not sure that the direct correlation is forgiveness. However, let me state this, that forgiveness is certainly something that comes by way of um, God informing our hearts because in our limited scope, we can only see the issue. We can only see what we care to haggle over. We don't see the bigger picture. Um, When stating the bigger picture, let me just run really quick to an area that's outside of this discussion to the epistle of Ephesians. And uh, I will go to uh, verse number 31, chapter 4, verse number 31. Uh, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, note the text, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Um, Literally, our offense against God is not equivalent to our offense against one another. When we're talking about our offense against God, we're talking about cosmic treason. As such, there is no greater crime committed on any place in the goal, uh, any place uh, in the globe or outside of the globe than that offense that is committed by mankind against his creator, his or her creator. As such, are we made more intelligent when we gain the 
mimicking ability so that by the power of the Holy Spirit and in accordance to the word of God, by the way, that's chapter 5, verse number 1, therefore be imitators of God or mimickers, if you will, of God. When we gain such intelligence on a peripatological level, that is, when we gain that ability not only to have an intellectual awareness of that, but an ability to walk that out in shoe leather on a practical basis so as to imitate God and forgive one another because there's no great, uh, greater offense that we have against one another than God could hold against us, but he has released us and resolved that by means of propitiation or the satisfaction that Jesus Christ has brought at the cross. Are we made more intelligent when we apply that or when we are aware of that? Absolutely. Medical science has proved that literally there are many maladies or diseases that can be connected with an individual's bitterness of heart or resistance of forgiveness. It can cause heart debilitation. It can cause headaches. It can literally cause tumors or cancers or things of that nature as we work with stress. Literally, there have been neurologists that have measured the activity of the brain when we are dealing with uh, positive thought and negative thought. And the more negative thought that we have, it releases such things that that can actually um, thwart the progress, success, and overall health and well-being of the body. So the principle is this, getting back to Leviticus, the principle is this overall in, in brief summarization, that we are not only made more intelligent for our interaction with God, but when we act on that, whatever it is, whether it be forgiveness, whether it be his laws, dietary, etc., moral laws in any particular area, uh, whatever it is, not only are we made more intelligent on an intellectual aspect, but we are benefactors on in every aspect because... Because God doesn't give laws just because he's the biggest and he gets to make the rules. He gives laws or regulations for our overall benefit. And when we can acquiesce or submit or surrender to those truths, not only are we better informed, but we are better overall. You know, and just to, just to add briefly to that, um, and just to tag on, on the end there, um, Leviticus as as laws giving to the people of Israel and demonstrating uh, for Israel who God is, what he's like, also for the, the benefit of showing the other nations what this God is like. God is, it's as if God is giving laws of life that's, that says if you will do these things, life will work better for you. And there's, and as Israel, when Israel did that, um, they were, uh, they were blessed and God um, um, brought blessing on them, but as they did, when they strayed away from that, life turned uh, against them, so to speak. Uh, and so God is revealing um, uh, supernatural knowledge through these laws that kept them safe or that brought blessing to their lives um, as His people. Because you know, think about what we're talking about here in Leviticus. He is making them into His own people, and this is part of, part of their learning of of. Uh, of what he's like and who and who God is, and it's not for the purpose of just so they can go off by themselves with God. It's for the purpose so they can become the people of God to then minister and be light to the surrounding nations. Because people, because ultimately God wants all people to come to Him, and um, and so this is what uh, He is doing here in this in this chapter. And um, I'm glad to be brought back to Leviticus because I had no idea where you're going with Ephesians. <laughs> Allow me to highlight uh, the book of Leviticus now from a um, from a Judaic standpoint, if I may. I didn't know you're Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Oh, John, <laughs> you're a funny man. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. I'm sorry, you stuck me with that one. That and and if in that seal at the same time, you could wind it up by just for the sake of the listener, just giving a, a one sentence statement to. Encase the whole of Leviticus. Oh, my. Um, but I know that you had said something to say before that. Yes. I uh, Did you want me to give that one statement summary before or after? I would say after. Okay. All right. Um, that would give you time to think about the question. <laughs> uh, from a Judaic standpoint, you've got to remember, first of all, that um, uh, the book of Leviticus really records one month between Exodus and Numbers. 
immediately coming out of uh, uh, Egypt and going into the wilderness. The question is, how do we approach a holy God? How do we approach a holy God? And and not only how do we approach a holy God, but um, uh, what is that going to look like? Through whom will we approach that holy God? Thus, you have the establishment, really, of the priesthood there. And so it really is the sanctification of the nation. But why is it the setting apart of the sanctification of the nation? It's the sanctification of the Jewish nation because our God has chosen to give us the privilege, the extraordinary August privilege of dwelling with us, of being in our midst. No other nation can say that. They can say that they have idols. They can say that they have this or that. But no other nation can say that they had the direct effulgent presence of God with them. Um, For instance, let me just go back for a moment to the book of Exodus. Um, not only does it show the redemption of the names so that it starts out Vishimot and these uh, are, are the names, um, uh, but then you start with the book of uh, Leviticus Varika uh, and he called, if you will. Um, uh, this is going to be the establishment of the priesthood, the laws that's going to aid us whereby we may be set apart uh, of course, we were set apart in in, uh, in in Egypt by means of the blood sacrifice and the blood placed ab- uh, above the doorposts and, and the sacrificial lamb uh, that was eaten together and uh, eaten with sandals on so that it would be eaten in haste so that we could quickly leave Egypt. But uh, when we're looking at the book of Leviticus, um, um, how do we approach this holy God who in the latter section of what many might consider to be a very boring um, um, segment of Exodus, which it is not. It's very exciting how God sets up the criteria for coming into his midst by means of the establishment and design of the tabernacle. And when we're talking about that, you've got to remember the first item of furniture that's actually designed in the tabernacle. Um, by Ohaliab and Bazalel. Uh, this first item is the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because worship happens and it is orchestrated from God's perspective toward man, not man's perspective toward God. So we're looking at what God has established and now we're wondering, and how do we interact with this? So really you should see these two works as contemporaneous because one month into the uh, uh, the whole Exodus venture and the establishment of the tabernacle and the book of Deut- uh, or Numbers, the wanderings, we're already receiving rules while this tabernacle is going up on what it looks like to have a priesthood that will make it possible for us to approach a holy God on laws of sacrifice, on laws of offerings and things of that nature. And what we're finding out is, yes, does God want to be close to us? He absolutely does. But he has rules and regulations because he's not to be trifled with. This is no infinitesimal God that is to be taken casually, if you will. He will be sanctified or considered holy, set apart in the midst of his people who set apart. So at this point, we find out that forks can be set apart, not that they are morally pure, but that this is to be used for the positive purpose of God and so may not be used for common purposes. So when we look at this particular book, or we look at this particular literature, uh, we would literally be awestruck because in this particular section, like for instance, um, from a um, from a uh, Christian standpoint, in in uh, the Brit Hadash uh, Hadashah or in the New Testament, you look at one Corinthians thirteen and you say the love chapter, right, which really is sandwiched betwixt chapters twelve and fourteen on spiritual gifts. If you have the love chapter in one Corinthians twi- uh, thirteen uh, in Leviticus is four, you have the sin chapter. This is where we have the ordinances concerning uh, the sacrifices of sin. And get this, uh, why is this so pertinent not only to us as a nation? It is not only pertinent to us as a nation, but God establishes how he's not only going to be the sovereign king of Israel here and dwell among his people, but he establishes how he's going to have fellowship with the entire world by means of eventually and inevitably making good on the Genesis 12 one through three, Abrahamic covenant, whereby the seed of Abraham is going to come and be that propitiation or propitiatory or satisfying sacrifice that's literally going to not only take away the sins of the nation of Israel, but take away the sins of the entire world on a cosmic level. 
So this is like, this is major for us because uh, uh, our Messiah is going to come. If he is the viable Messiah, our Messiah is going to come and fulfill every aspect of the sin offering that is spoken of in Leviticus 4. And he is going to be the ultimate high priest who's going to make it possible and probable that we might approach a holy God and might ultimately be a holy people. I have one last statement to say. <laughs> if I may, because this is a huge point, I think, that has to be said. The principle is this in Leviticus. You cannot approach God without a sacrifice. The, 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 you can't have the basis for atonement without a sacrifice. You can have the basis for a, a relationship with God without the sacrifice. This is huge because this is, becomes the basis for all of even Christianity. In other words, a person in the world cannot come to God, and God cannot forgive that person unless the sacrifice has been made that, that pays for, that forgiveness is based on a sacrifice. In other words, a person who uh, does not follow Jesus, let's say they're Muslim or let's say they're another religion, if they do not have a sacrifice, they cannot approach God. And this is very clear what Leviticus is teaching is this sacrifice, which is throughout the book, is highly stressed. This, it's, it's as if to say, let me tell you again and again and again and again, the basis for fellowship and relationship with God, you cannot approach God or go into God's very presence without some sort of sacrifice. Now, fast forward thousands of years later into Christ, where he becomes the perfect sacrifice, so, at the, so that only his sacrifice is all that's necessary. My point is, is that the, the principle of sacrifice that God says, there has to be a sacrifice for you to, to, to approach me. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't have to be sacrificed again and again and again. One time was enough. Um, you don't have to go doing all sorts of bringing offerings to God of sacrifices to, you know, to your temple or to whatever. Christ has already paid for it all. Um, and that is the basis for even our forgiveness. That is, that forgiveness is based on the fact that the cost has already been paid for. And that's, I think that's, uh, that's something I don't want to leave Leviticus without that, that point because um, it's often missed. And sometimes when I'm talking with people, especially people of other faiths, my, first, my question to them is often, what do you do to atone for your sin? What, is, what has been done or what will be done to atone for your sin? And the only atonement that God will, will, will accept, of course, is an unblemished atonement. And his son is the perfect atonement and the perfect sacrifice that was offered. And you don't have to bring atonements. You just accept what, the perfect atonement of Christ that, he, that, that God pr- prepared and presented on your behalf. So let's not, you know. <laughs> yeah. Can I intervene? There? I'm done. <laughs> I just had to say that. <laughs> Forgive me, uh, we're obviously not going to go beyond numbers today, and that's fine because I do have another question for BCL. In this period in Leviticus, yes, God is, uh, is, is infiltrating our hearts and our minds, giving us wisdom, letting us learn uh, his way, the, the, the way to uh, a blessed life. Is he also in that particular period teaching us the worthiness of community with each other in the numbers that they were then? This this is one of the struggles um, because Israel, it took a while to learn how to be a family, a nation. It really did. The, the formulation of... of what it looked like to be a community in fellowship had huge ramifications. Um, uh, and, and this particular period of time, um, because 430 years had been spent uh, in Egypt um, in captivity, before that it was a smaller family of about 70 or thereabout who went into the land of Goshen. Before that, it's uh, um, a family of 12. And, of course, that starts with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and, and, and his 12 children, his 12 sons, if you will, rather. Um, 
and and going from that family that was very dysfunctional in many ways to a nation that grew in numbers or, or grew in in size but had not necessarily grown in in fellowship in in willingness to commune not only with their god but with one another uh, yes one of the struggles that you see throughout the torah is uh, how do we interact with one another? And by the way, this is important not only in this Torah community, but this is important even in uh, Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, isn't it? Because when he's asked by a scribe, which are the two greatest commandments and which is the priority commandment, what does he say in response? Uh, he responds with the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, or Hero Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Uh, and you shall love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like thereunto, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, as a community, it was really important that uh, some of the mitzvot, uh, some of the commandments were directly geared on a horizontal scale. Why shouldn't we commit murder? It's not only an atrocity uh, and an affront against God, but it also hurts the individual who is created in the imagio deo, in the image of God, namely within the framework of Israel, it hurts our neighbor. Of course, according to the Noahic covenant, it hurts all humanity, and all humanity really is our neighbor, aren't they? But when you get into Israel, it's even more concentrated. You shall not murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. Why? Because it not only is an affront or an assault to God, but it also hurts your neighbor, who very often you are living right there in the community with them, and they had to live with that sore burden of of being embarrassed and being uh, uh, demeaned and debased in that way. So is he teaching them the essentiality of community? Yes. In what way? The sacrifices are not only pertinent toward God. They're not only pertinent toward God, but they are pertinent for our fellowship because, listen, the sacrifice gives us our commonality to a certain extent. To a certain extent, it is by means of that sacrifice that we are able to have the unity that we have together so that we understand the bludgeoning, the bludgeoning nature of sin, the horror of sin. And because of coming and saying, listen, I want to be rid of that so that I'm rid of all that comes between God and I and you and I. That enables that. That's the same thing when you get to the New Testament because according to Ephesians 4 again, we have been given by the blood of Christ a unity of the Spirit. And so we no longer have to fight for that unity of community. What we need to do is uphold the unity within the community that the Holy Spirit has given us. But it it could be sensible to say that back then they failed in many ways to, to achieve that. And that may be as prevalent an issue today as it was then. Well, you know, uh, um, they didn't whole, holistically fail to do that. Uh, there were rules where um, uh, you could not um, tax one another. There couldn't be a usury against one another if you, uh, if you loaned money so that you could uh, give interest or things of that nature. Uh, they certainly sought to um, uh, acknowledge that as a community. Uh, that can still be held to strongly even in modern day. But was there a struggle? Absolutely. Um, since Genesis 3, it's a struggle to have those pure disciplines on a communal level or on a familial level or even on a spiritual level that ought to be common um, courtesies toward one another. And particularly within the church today, is that a realistic struggle? Yes. We are in unity, but unity also allows for diversity. Unity is not uniformity. And what we often get is people trying to cookie cut one another and insist that we're all alike. Well, of course, everybody's not going to be all alike. God never ordained it in that way. You have disunity among the ethnicity so that you have disunity amongst individuals who are different uh, melalin tints or different pigments. You have disunity in families. You have disunity uh, in uh, uh, churches, in communities, in civilizations, in societies all over the world. What is the cure for that? The sacrifice. What is the cure for that? The Holy Spirit's gracious gift to us that we be unified as a result of what has been established. How do we do that? We walk in truth, not in selfishness. And that's one of the things that uh, the, the Torah established for that community so that they would have rules, regulations that set forth um, the means
means and methodology, the modus operandi for how that was to be realized, that kind of closeness? Thanks for responding to that. You're welcome. Um, so that we have time here to cover numbers, could you just go ahead for our listeners' sake and just give a, a one-liner statement that, that summarizes that period in Leviticus, please? Holiness. In that case, let's move on with that to numbers. Which of you gentlemen would like to start off with the overview of that period? Oh, I will share a little bit about numbers. So here, Leviticus, we have covered. It's a month long. But, uh, you know, numbers, they're on their way to the promised land. Okay. Um, they, God has faithfully delivered them from Exodus. Uh, he is keeping his promise that he held he, promised Abraham over 400 years prior. There's a lot of hope and anticipation, a lot of looking forward to in the future, finally getting to this promised land. Um, but Numbers is is a book that where Israel had such potential, they failed to, to reach it. And this reason is because of their unbelief. Uh, they make preparations for going to the promised land. Uh, but then they run into various setbacks, and those are uh, things like rebellion and complaining and murmuring. They start uh, mumbling and complaining about uh, you know, Moses. Why is Moses in charge? Why aren't we in charge? Um, uh, God, give us meat to eat, you know. Um, and and finally, it's 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 um, the breaking point comes in Numbers thirteen, where. Um, Spies are sent into the land to find out what this land is like. And unfortunately, uh, most of the spies come back and say, this land is too, the people are too big, they're too powerful, we can't take this land. And because of these 10 spies that come back, the people decide to want to go back to Egypt. And they want to go back and everything that God has worked for, they want to uh, sort of um, reject and because of their unbelief, uh, God says, you're not, you're not going to be able to enter the land. The only people that can enter the land will be Joshua and Caleb and, that, and the younger ones who will then grow up and the second generation will be able to enter the land. So Numbers is a book of basically of wandering and failure in the desert because of unbelief and okay. failure to take what God has promised because of unbelief. And these people reporting back, yes. what evidence is there to suggest why they came back with that that conclusion. Okay, well, they go into the land, and I think the assumption was that this land would be empty, maybe. <laughs> but the people of the land are very strong. The Canaanites had walled cities, and they were bigger than the Israelites. And they had quickly forgotten how, how God had delivered them from Egypt. Um, Egypt was the world power at the time. You just didn't walk out of Egypt I mean, what God went through to literally cause the Egyptians to basically kick them out because they've had enough of, what, of God's uh, power. And even the people of the Canaanites had heard about what happened to, to the Egyptians. Um, they had soon forgotten that, as if to say, oh, God was faithful back then, but he's not going to be faithful now. And God says, no, I will be faithful now. Uh, they were afraid. They saw people that were bigger than them, and they forgot the statement that God said, I will fight for you. You just do what I tell you, and I will be the ones that will fight for you. And so, yeah, the people were bigger. The, the cities were walled and well-fortified. And here they are a bunch of ex-slaves, um, not well-trained. They're not warriors. And they're going to take on people in Canaan that were warriors. It's, 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 it's like this. It's like watching a group of farmers try to take on a well-trained militia force. Right, uh, uh, and and watching these people with pitchforks as they face down nuclear weapons, uh, say, uh, "Ha, we're going to get you." I mean, y you really have to step into the minds of these people and and realize it. when he says they weren't warriors, they not only were not warriors, they knew that they weren't warriors. One of the things that Pharaoh does, he's such a shrewd personality. One of the things that Pharaoh does is he seeks to not only 
through slavery, and this is often what slavery does. This is often what happens to victims through their victimizers. He not only seeks to take advantage of their bodies, he seeks to belittle their minds and take away their confidence. And they really did have their confidence stripped away during that period of time so that even though God did the the this phenomenal miracle, and I, I don't have time to go into the nature of the miracle, but listen, all of the plagues, the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud over day, the pillar of fire by night, I mean, they were not bereft of a manifestation of God's muscularity. The splitting of the Red Sea. Oh, huge. I mean, <laughs> how do you, how do you, the power that was necessary to do that as and, you're, as and being chased. to drown the army that attempted to follow. Right. Okay. And I, I am not trying to open up a can of worms. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> but, but, but let's look at the situation today in the Middle East. They're reporting the Christians amount to about 10% of the Arab, Arab League, the Arab countries. What is God going to do here? How is he going to restore faith in the Christians today? Is he going to divide the Red Sea? And I'm not being, I'm not being cynical or, or, flippant. or flippant at all. Can I take a shot at this question? You, you can. What, what? Listen, it, it, look at everything that's going on in the Middle East. If God did this once, <laughs> this is a horrendous scenario. How is God going to rescue his people again is basically what you're asking, David, right? And, 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 and let's, let's be straightforward here. <laughs> let's be straightforward because when you look at the book of Numbers, um, they were not only uh, numbered for military purposes and for accountability, but in the book of Numbers, Bimidbar, in the wilderness, literally. Um, uh, this was a wilderness experience where several things had to be established. Uh, we'll deal with that in just a few moments. But they are not, again, well-trained military force at this point. But God never intended for them to be, if the truth be told. Listen, going into the land this land, when you, when you read this idiomatic phraseology that says a land flowing with milk and honey, he was actually in this idiomatic phraseology telling them, I'm going to put you in a land that requires constant faith in me. And, and, and with this understood, here's what's happening. Yes, it will have goats that's going to give you the milk. Yes, you're going to have honey. Yes, you're going to have provision, but not such a provision that's going to forego your dependence upon me. Listen, Israel was not chosen because they were the greatest nation, because they were the largest nation, because they were the most capable nation. In fact, the prophets reveal this. They were chosen because they were the least of the nations, a nation who was not a nation. God is the one who formed and forged this nation out of nothing. Nothing, literally from their father, Avraham. The concept then is this. Any military victories that they were to have as a nation was to be had as a result of their dependence on God. And the concept is the Middle East does not shake up God today. Uh, there's always been great uh, unrest in that area uh, where the Fertile Crescent is, where the cradle of civilization. There has always been unrest. What's really interesting is it's a proof of the sagacity of God and the faithfulness of God because even though the world has gone forward so many millennia, we have not escaped the piece of geography and territory that God has said is important from the beginning of time. As such, David, to directly answer your question and the audience's question, uh, I would say this. God's arm has never been short that he cannot save or deliver. God can deliver either by a storm in the book of Genesis 6 through 9 with a flood. He can deliver so that he gives the king um, unrest on his bed in the case of dealing with Abraham's wife, Sarah. Or he can deliver by means of terrorizing the, clean, the king in Egypt through ten plagues. He can deliver by means of the Red Sea. Josephus says concerning this that Moses prayed a prayer. Whether you deliver us by taking us through the sea or over it, it's up to you, O God. Jehoshaphat says our eyes are on you. What's the concept? The concept is do not count Israel out. 
Do not count the God of Israel out. God will eschatologically come and liberate and rescue his people despite what the Middle East looks like right now. And it's, you know, it's funny because it's as if God likes the underdog. He likes the odds to be really against Israel in some points. I mean, here, you know, you go to the book of Joshua and they're going to go and and defeat the city of Jericho, a walled city, by walking around it seven days and then shouting at the end of the seventh day. So the point is is that, uh, or, or, you know, Book of Judges with Gideon facing the Midianites with 300 men. Uh, the, the point is, is that God actually delights for the odds to be uh, so bad, so that it, re- it reveals that it's not Israel's strength or their might, their military might. They could be outnumbered 10 to 1. But if God is on their side, they can be outnumbered a billion to one, and God will still defeat. The point is is that um, the difference maker is not how strong Israel is. The difference maker is God himself, and that's the whole point. It doesn't matter whether historically it was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. It, it doesn't matter whether or not it was Hitler, uh, whose, whose, goal, whose goal, by the way, was to wipe out uh, the nation, the entire nation. doesn't matter whether it was Stalin. Uh, we're, we're not talking about something that has not happened before. It doesn't matter whether it was General Titus in 70 AD. Uh, we're not talking about something that has not been done before. We're talking about constant attacks over time against Israel as a nation. doesn't matter if it was Aram, if it, if it was Rezin, if it was Pika, Remaliah, it doesn't matter who it was. Uh, this is not new. doesn't matter if it was Nabopolassar with his son Nebuchadnezzar. doesn't matter if it was whatever nation you want to name historically. Israel has been here before, and they've always come through not because of them, but because of their God. And blessed is the nation whose God is Hashem or the Lord. Just for the sake of the listeners, can I ask what was the difference between Israel then and Israel that we see today? Across the board. That's a good question. I think I think it is. <laughs> That's I think a very it, good question. I think it would be a good question for our listeners to to understand what we're referring to in all of these books. Well, I mean, it depends on this. I mean, as a, okay, geographically speaking, smaller than it was then, you know, yeah. um, uh, as a people, um, there's a lot of similarities as far as uh, their observance to the laws and, and their, their, their faith still in the Torah and the commandments. There's a lot of dissimilarities as well, though, yeah, because you true. have a lot. Yeah, listen. I'm really not trying to no, it's a good put question. a clangor in it, here. No, it's a powder keg. <clears throat> if I'm honest with you, it's a powder keg because there are many similarities. I mean, the nation, um, um, I, I, that's such a big question because whereas you had a unified nation after, after, the, um, after uh, Saul and Solomon, uh, or Saul, David, and Solomon, then you had the, uh, the kingdom uh, that split at the divided kingdom. And of course, you had uh, in 722 BCE, you had the 10 tribes that we're now just locating now, some in Ethiopia and et cetera. And you had, of course, the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. Um, uh, so, I mean, there's several differences where uh, you, don't, you don't have them all solidified as a nation today as you once had them solidified, as well as when, when John refers to their Torah observance you also have a great deal of the uh, Israeli community that that uh, is is atheist. Yeah. Um, that's that's Torah observant out of rote or repetition, not out of faith, if you will. You also have a larger community that's messianic now and ever increasing in that area. Um, so you have a, a, a lot of similarities, but you have a lot of dissimilarities. But there is something that remains. I think this one common denominator remains. No matter what the people look like today, God made a unilateral covenant to be faithful to these people. He really did. So whatever they started out as and whatever they are now, they always, over time, remain the chosen people of God. In that final review, would one of you gentlemen like to give us a summarization of numbers? 
Well, numbers, again, um, dealing with, with the potential of, of the people of God in following God and the very promises that he had made, um, but because of unbelief and disobedience, uh, they were not able to um, experience those blessings or experience the promises, particularly the land. Um, and what's significant is because of the unbelief, uh, numbers, we get the book of numbers from the fact that there's a genealogy or there's a, there's a numbering of the people before they go and then even after. And if you compare the two, the two uh, lists, you'll find out that their numbers actually decreased. As if to say uh, the, the disobedience of the people at the time did not help them out one bit. In fact, it made, it, made them less uh, uh, prepared to go into the land. But God was still faithful, though, because he did not give up on the people. Even though the, that generation was not able to go in, he did promise that the second generation, and the children, and Joshua and Caleb, that second generation would then continue into the land. Um, and, God will, and God still kept his promise. And even... Um, you know, remain faithful, faithful to them to provide for them because they are going to be wandering in the book of Numbers for 38 or so years. He's going to uh, faithfully uh, lead them and protect them uh, during this time. Uh, or, and, um, but he's, and, he's still, and he still blesses them. Um, but um, the failure in the desert will, will be redeemed uh, later on um, by him bringing into the, into the promised land eventually in, in the book of Joshua. So... I am not as, this may sound odd, I, I am not as fond of the title from the Septuagint Numbers, which is more of a summarization than I think is more of an accurate portrayal of of the concept because I think Bamidbar is really essential in this book, namely in the wilderness. Uh, we'll talk about this more next week um, because, listen, as a nation... They didn't do well in the wilderness. Not at all. Um, the wilderness is tragic for the nation. Uh, it, it, it really is a failure. But the book of Deuteronomy comes back around with hope. Because even in that 40-year failure, that 40-year um, graveyard where so many familiar faces die, including Moses, Aaron, uh, Miriam, etc. Uh, what happens in Deuteronomy um, during that wilderness time, by the way, it's contemporaneous again at the latter part of that wilderness wandering in Deuteronomy, you have Moses come back out and he gives a restating and a further clarification of the Torah, the mandates of God. And he gives this new generation hope and he gives them rules so that the tragedy that filled this wilderness and made this wilderness a graveyard and made the time constraints expand so that it went from 40 days to 40 years does not become necessary for them in the land that the Lord their God has promised. So listen, what I think is the summarization both for this week and the next week is God has always wanted to be with us and wanted to approach us. And he's with us even in our wilderness moments of life and even in our failures.